Hello, movie lovers. Welcome home. My name is Amy Henserling, and you are listening to Watch This List Unplugged, here for another installment in my Hidden Gem series. I am very delighted today to be talking with my buddy, Michael, whom uh, Letterboxd knows as Off, just O-F-F, which is an unusual name. I don't know, Michael, if you want to explain the origins to everybody, but it is a good story. So I feel like that would be worth it. Okay, yeah. Well, I mean, it's a fairly fairly straightforward way that I came to the name. And yes. I discovered Letterboxd. I'd been doing sort of movie reviews for my group of friends for years. I was the guy that would always say, oh, you know, I've got an opinion on this movie. I'm going to get it written down and share it with you all. And then I thought, well, I'll just use this site to log it. And then I realized, mm-hmm. oh, you actually need a username. And I went, well, I, I gave a two-word response. The second word was off. Um, and then I thought, oh, that'll do, off. And then I haven't changed it for however many years. So, Yeah, he was very annoyed, uh, shall we say, that he had to create a handle, and he was like, ah. Oh. <laughs> I was in a off. bit dyspeptic mood that day, so I was like, oh, right. you know. So you just kept off? Yeah, you yeah, just it, just, kept... it just stuck, and then I never I never thought of anything better, and here I am. Here you are, all grown up. I, you don't know what year that was, right? That was probably what? Some time okay. ago. I think it would have been when I'd just come back from watching Prometheus, so whenever that dropped, because I had thoughts. Speaking of uh, Fassbender, because we've been uh, mm. talking about the counselor and uh, his robotic. I think you agreed with me, though, that uh, he was the best thing about uh, first class. Oh, yeah. But yeah. then he does kind of have a way about him that that seems he has no soul. He he does have these. I think someone called it dead shark eyes, I think is the best mm. way I've heard it described. <laughs> and that I don't I say that as a compliment because I think it's perfect for the characters that he plays and in Macbeth it is absolutely mm. to a T like him and um, I think it's Marion Cotillard who plays the yes. Lady Macbeth in that they are both outstanding in that film it's like they're not really even you don't feel like you're watching someone perform you feel like it's so intimate and close it almost feels like you're intruding and yeah that's the best I've ever seen him but I agree he can be quite in the wrong film I don't think he's the best yeah, he shouldn't really be in like a rom com. No, no, I definitely don't think I or, can. Or, or a family film. I'm, I'm also thinking of like Shame, mm. and uh, that one he's definitely cold, but he's supposed to. So yeah, he's yeah. he's just not really warm and fuzzy. No, he? you don't get the warm fuzzies from uh, from Fassie. Definitely not. Mm, no, Fassie. I think he's best when he's either like he's got this side project where he does motor racing. So I think oh. he, he literally goes and, and races. I think it's touring cars. And he's mm-hmm. great in that because obviously very intense, very focused. So I think you can see that he's best when you give him a character like that, who's very intense and focused, because that I think that bleeds from his personality into the role. Yeah. So Prometheus, yay or nay for Fassie? Uh, uh, for Fassie, for Fassie, yay. 100%. I think he works okay. in the film perfectly. I loved all the like Lawrence of Arabia throwbacks that they were doing with it. I loved they weren't mm. subtle about it. It was great. Um, the film itself was probably an A. Um, I probably, I don't feel as strongly about it now as I did the first time I watched it. I'm kind of like, ah, yeah, well, the ship design's quite cool. I like some of the visuals. It's not a total write-off, but like, I think my things I dislike about it are the same as a lot of other people, like the flimsy characterizations, all of that stuff. But I really liked Covenant for some reason. Um, mm. 
Covenant did it for me uh, because I think I wasn't taking it seriously um, in the same way that I was taking Prometheus seriously. So I was just able to have fun with it and just. Yeah, that seems to be sort of the thread uh, with Scott movies. Mm. It's like it for some of them. I mean, he has such a such a uh, different. Uh, his filmography is so varied. But a lot of them, if you come at them too seriously, you're just going to be sorely disappointed. But if you can laugh at them, yeah. or with them, I should say, uh, I kind of feel it's like a little he's, more fun. He's almost laughing at the entire human race, Ridley Scott, in some mm -hmm. of his films. He, it feels like he exists in a bubble, like outside of humans, and he's sort of looking in through the looking glass and studying us and going, "Aren't you silly?" You know, and I think. Mm. That's why people complain about the, the characterizations in Covenant, in Covenant being flimsy, but I think they're right. supposed to be that way because that's how he views humanity, as terrifying as that, that sounds. I think that's Ridley Scott's view of, of us. Yeah, and he's like an alien. I mean, anybody that would make House of Gucci. Um, <laughs> or cast really Jared Leto just... in that role and go, do you know what? That take was fine, Jared. We're keeping that one in. That's good to go. We're going to keep going. Yeah. Uh, more yeah mm, madman okay so so i'm honored to have you here off slash michael and and i'm happy to know your real name now um and uh what you look like because for the longest time i thought you were just like an old guy because your reviews are so wise and uh profound and then i'm and then i meet him i'm like oh my gosh he's younger than i am so Oh, okay. That's well, that's, nice. that's flattering. But yeah, I, I mean, I hope there's a little bit of wisdom in there. But I also hope I'm a bit, oh, like, sure. a bit of a court jester as well. I like to think mm. so. If you can come away having just smiled a bit at what something I've written, then that that's the thing that makes me happiest. Yeah. So everybody follow him. Off. Okay. So so Michael's picks uh, today or his two hidden gems are very different. I don't know that we could pinpoint one thing that they have in common, which is fun. Uh, but both five stars for you, Michael. Mm -hmm. And uh, I hadn't seen this first one, but I had seen the second, although it felt like watching a different movie the second time, which right. is cool. Yeah. But the first one is, um, why don't you announce it? Because I'm going to butcher this guy's last name, director's last name. Okay. Um, so this one is Senna, uh, which is the, about the Brazilian racing driver, uh, Ayrton Senna. And he is um, a legend of Formula One. Um, and he basically raced throughout the 70s and the 80s. Um, and this director, who, um, I, I'm, I mean, I, I believe it's pronounced as if Capadia. Capadia. Uh, yeah. Uh, he managed to, um, basically, he did a presentation to the family of Senna and, you know, um, said, this is what we're going to do for the movie. It was actually an hour, 40 minute presentation, something like that. So it was a substantial wow. thing. And they were so confident in what he, he was doing, his vision, they gave him access to like home videos and personal documents that hadn't been seen before. Um, and it gives you a picture of what Senna was like as a man, not just as a racing driver. And you get the sense of this person who was almost, you know, a mystic in a way. He was committed to his craft and he felt he had like a communion through God in the race car and that he had like mm -hmm. a God-given right to speed. So there's there's a lot of ego there, but there's also a lot of humility with Senna as well as a person. So he's a very complicated character. Um, and also the other thing that I, I'm interested in in that film is the fact that it is all kind of existing footage. So the editing job, if you think about 
what the director had to go through to get that oh, through. Oh, man. Because, like, the amount of footage that F1 shoots, you know, and the, the behind-the-scenes stuff, he would have to be selective. And, in fact, they actually picked the director because he, he wasn't familiar with Senna because they wanted a fair kind of point of view. They didn't want a hero worship. They wanted something that would tell the story properly. And I think he kind of, with one or two exceptions, I think he did a pretty good job. Oh, for sure. And I didn't know anything about it either. So, I mean, I didn't know who Senna was either. So I was going into it completely cold. Uh, this is also made in 2010, documentary, obviously. But, uh, you know, I think of 2010 as new, but it's not. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I thought of actually uh, OJ Made in America while I was watching this. Hmm. And um, the the way that they're both sort of styled with the footage and they have the voiceover, uh, you know, like a journalist reading about him or uh, his sister has voiceover. So hmm. there is a little bit of that um, sort of cinematic sense that's thrust on it, but you're right. Otherwise, it is just basically watching things that were filmed on site. Yeah, I mean, it's like watching history unfold in front of you rather than here's a guy in a chair. Um, you know that it was shot all in one day with that guy and they're just using the extracts they want for the film. It kind of makes you aware that you're watching a film. Whereas when you watch Senna, you're quite right, there's voiceover and like ex explanatory stuff that goes on, but it's overlaid over footage of him driving or footage from the time. So you never feel like you're watching this stale, dusty kind of uh, document from history playing out. You feel like you're watching actual... Well, you are watching actual real life, but a lot, you know, you actually feel it in that documentary, whereas a lot of documentaries, the talking heads, I find, take you out of it. And I think if, right. you, if you look at what happened after Senna came out, that became almost the template for documentaries going forwards, like, like especially biopics. They, they didn't um, resort to talking heads. They were like, we're going to keep you in the moment. So I think it started a bit of a trend there. And you find it, I feel like what you love the most about this is the visceral nature of it. Like it, it's like so stimulating and exciting. Yeah, I mean, like the, en the engine noise, the fact that you're there with Senna, like when he messes up the lap in Monaco, you know, the soundtrack comes on and you feel his anguish. You feel like his anger with himself as he's walking back to the pits. And then you combine that with the voiceover from, I think it's uh, the, the team manager at the time, um, Ron Dennis talking about his, his feeling was just pure anger. He wouldn't even come out of his motorhome for hours to speak to anyone. So, you know, you know, if you're trying to understand the sport, a good way to do it is to reverse engineer it and look at the reactions of the people taking part in the sport and what how much it matters to them. And I think Senna does a really good job of that, um, particularly when you're looking at the rivalry between Senna and Frost um, when yes. it comes, comes to that, because these are two very different men in competing in the same sport because Senna was, as you say, he was an emotional character. He was sensitive. Um, you can see it in the driver's meeting when um, he's validated um, and something that happened that went against him the previous year, all of the drivers go, no, that was wrong. And Senna like has to leave because it's too emotional for him. Whereas Prost is more of this kind of calculating figure. He was known as the professor because he would do what was necessary to win a race. So I think the film tells you like if, if he's in fifth place and he needed the points for fifth, he wouldn't try and push for the win. Um, so you have these two people who clash and it is very, a, a meeting of two worlds almost. And also they should never have been both driving for the same team because they're both number one drivers. So in, right. in Formula One, you need to have a number one and number two driver. And the number two driver's job is to bring home the points, but not to challenge the number one driver. 
Whereas Ron Dennis, who was like the, the team principal at McLaren, just got these two guys together and didn't think too much about it. Um, and then he had these two guys in the same machinery at each other's throats season after season. So you could see how the rivalry and the unpleasantness kind of builds. And the film does a really good job of showing that. I think there's like a, a slow motion shot of Prost and Senna walking past each other and just they exchange a glance, just a look. And they do a little bit of slow-mo on that look. But you can see so much antipathy that it almost takes your breath away in that that one shot. Yeah, and they were from different – they were different because uh, Senna was, is Brazilian and then Prost was, he was uh, French. French, right? Yeah, and he him being French actually – worked in his favor because the head of the like the governing body at the time was French and he's mm. obviously you know he favored Prost it was well known um so they had he's quite a dictatorial author authoritarian guy and they had a driver's meeting where he said no the best decision is my decision and then you hear Prost go well I tell you I have a feeling about that and then he says no it's a driver's my decision drivers vote democratic only the drivers and then they the drivers all vote and they pick Senna's option and, uh, you know, so you can see Senna's little victory in that scene. Um, and yeah, and it's quite fun to see what he was up against in terms of the politics in the sport. So he was not just driving against rivals on the track, but he was also dealing with behind the scenes stuff. And of course, that's where right. Prost was a master of that. He knew exactly how to position himself to get the right drive in the right car at the right time, because F1 is not just about the driver. It's like a, it's a continual technological war between the teams. Um, because the teams all build their own cars so it's not like every driver has the same chassis it's like a technological arms race so if you are the best driver on the grid but you're stuck in an absolute clapped out you know <laughs> second rate car you're not going to win anything um so there's a lot of moving parts to it um moving parts <laughs> didn't even realize what i was doing there yeah i know <laughs> I had to point it out because I knew you didn't know i was gonna say also that if you if you wanted you could really say that uh senna is passion like he mm. he's not methodical in that way like that that's what i found in their dichotomy was like senna is he's not going to get fifth place because he can't yeah. he wants to win he's really driven um he's very hard on himself and he, he's there to conquer it even if it doesn't make sense for him to yeah he can't it's like he, he can't, can't help stop himself. it yes yeah, well in a way that right. that might be a parallel between our two films uh, which is obsession uh, because oh, you know, you see, because yeah. Senna is obsessed with what he does, and it's That's not a, it's not a want; it's a need. He has to be the, the fastest. He has to be number one. Like in the the start of the film, when you see the Monaco GP, which is basically a, a nightmare for drivers, it's the most technical GP. He was flying around that race. He was, you know, like something like eleven seconds ahead of Prost, and he didn't stop pushing, and he made a mistake. And that's what then led to obviously him going out of that race. So like you say, he didn't know any other way, but that's why the fans no. loved him because he was tremendous to watch. Like he kept that car dancing on the edge. You can see in the footage that the car is slipping all over the place. He's throwing it into the corners. He's extracting every last second of speed out of that car as it's going. It's, it's thrilling. It's visceral. You get the sense that he was a master like technician. He really knew what he was doing in his craft. Um, and it all, all comes through, but you get the human side of, of Senna as well. Um, it shows you that I, I wish they'd gone into it a bit more, but it does show his charity work that he did back in Brazil. Um, obviously, he had that foundation that he opened up that you learn at the end of the film is still going and that, and that Prost is actually a trustee. Um, so that was nice because the two men did 
reconcile um towards the end well towards the end well and i was going to say too you brought up the his spirituality Mm. um which to me was very interesting because they didn't really they didn't really delve into it too much but i liked how he i mean anytime that he was speaking uh where it was just senna Mm. uh he did bring that up and say like that you know he kind of was in a different level of consciousness. The way he described it was so like how you would kind of say somebody's in the zone. Yeah. You know, when you're when you're in your sort of element and you're doing what you're meant to do. It's like a, that's what I got out of Senna was like that feeling. It's like a flow state almost where one action just flows into the next and you don't have to think about yes. it. And it's like Yes, that, and I'm, for him that was God. Yeah. Like it was God that was allowing it and he was like it was like almost out of body yeah. where he didn't even feel like he could sort of like take in what was even happening it was like he wasn't even there it was it was it him. was not conscious i think is the way that he he described it it was like an unco- right. unconscious thing that was guiding him at that point and it's it's enthralling to hear him speak because he clearly yes he clearly believes every word that he says he clearly is a genuine uh sincere guy um, and at the same time, though, like there is a theory in F1 that everyone F1 champion has to uh, has to discover what's called their inner. Um, I don't know if I can. Can I swear? It's not going to be. Too oh, bad. well, you, yeah. you are. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> they have to discover their inner bastard in order to become an oh. NF1 champion. It's, it's the working theory, basically. Hmm. Um, so that basically you get to a certain point where what you can do within the rules and within what's polite isn't enough anymore and so you can see that happen for Senna where you know he's got that race with Prost and he takes him out in the first corner which is kind of revenge for what Prost did to him the previous year at the Japanese Grand Prix because it's it's very historically very hard to pass there and he knew he needed to be either first place or you know Prost not finish the race for him to be world champion but the difference is you see with Senna he's really conflicted about that like after, right. afterwards, you can hear like the team principal again, Ron Dennis is talking and saying, I don't think he felt very good about that. And you can see even when Senna's talking about what does it feel like to be a world champion? He says, oh, it's not a bad feeling. But the way that he says it, you can tell that maybe there is a bit of a, a bad feeling for him. Like because he was a very moral, like decent, like person on one level. Like there's even it's not right. in, it's not in the documentary, but there's a there was a, either it was a practice session or a quality session. And he jumped out of his car in the middle of that session to go and assist another driver who was injured. So this is a guy who's obviously very compassionate, uh, but at the same time, he did discover that edge that he had to him because that competition with Prost pushed him right over the limit. It's it's also um, very telling that towards the end, when uh, they were sort of getting rid of the the part there was something that they were getting rid of in the car that was making it more difficult for him. And the doctor had sort of said to Senna, like, maybe you should stop. Like you've, you've won. No. Come, come fishing a bunch with of these. me is what he said. Let's, let's yeah. all together. Come fishing with me. And then Senna said, like, I can't stop. Hmm. And so to me, that's, that's the other time with the obsession part where it's like, even if he, even no matter how much he won, he said like winning is a drug. Uh, I mean, he himself said that. Yeah. So it's like, you know, that feeling of like, you you wish that you were so 
the best at something so that you could understand that high but then yeah. at the same time you're like it's scary if you felt that high it's scary because you couldn't just do normal things like how could you get in the car and drive somewhere when you're used to to being on that level and yeah. that's that's so fascinating to contemplate yeah you know, i mean to be about. to be an f1 world champion it means you are literally you have climbed the summit of motorsport you are um, right. someone who's raced the most difficult most technical circuits um you have made sure that you're in the right team you've made sure that you're communicating with your engineers properly because the drive the driver's job in f1 is highly technical as well so they have to give the feedback to the team um and right. senna was great at that as well um but I think what comes through to me in that documentary is just the fact that he did not know any other way, uh, you know, as we keep coming back to, he was just number one or, you know, that like there's that famous quote about him, uh, which is that uh, if, if you no longer go for a gap that's there, you're no longer a racing driver, you know, we're talking mm. about overtaking. And I think, although he's, he's using that to try and justify a, a pretty bad move that he made at the time, I think it does capture the spirit of him as a driver. Um, that he was for taking taking risks for pushing things to the to the limit, and um, I guess unfortunately at a certain point, and it wasn't even his fault, but at a certain point his luck did did run right out. out. Um, which... So so Michael, why do you think uh, before we go on to Duke, hmm. why do you think this is an underseen film? Like I know it's a hidden gem because I had never heard of it, but like well not that I'm like the definitive, but yeah. What what do you? Why is it not more popular in your opinion? Like why aren't people seeing this? I would say it's it's about a sport which doesn't have that big a reach in the US, or at least it didn't have at the time when Senate was driving. Um, like there were very okay. good US commentators working for ESPN at the time who were popularizing the sport. But even now with like Netflix and Drive to Survive, what it is now at the moment in the US is much, much bigger than then. So it's about a figure who's largely unknown outside of like um, Europe um, and obviously South right. America. And uh, also, it's a documentary as well, uh, which again, that can be a bit of a hard sell if you're doing a, a you know documentary, especially a bi biopic about someone who's not well known outside of their regions and territories. So I think that's one of the reasons. Um, but other than that, I think it did quite well for a documentary. It did. It had a really good opening in in the UK. It got a theatrical release in the US as well, um, which for a documentary about someone who's unknown outside of their territories is is pretty pretty damn good. But, you know, I think more people should see it because if you're wondering what F1's about, this is actually a better film, I would say, than Rush or any of the other F1 uh, narrative dramas that are out there that will tell you, like I said, reverse engineer it. This is what it means to the people competing in the sport. Go and see it. That's that's what I'd say. Great pitch. You did it for me. <laughs> Go see it. Plain and simple. Sweet. Simple and sweet. Okay, so that's Senna. Um, and... Uh, Michael's second pick is very different, uh, although apt about obsession. It is uh, The Duke of Burgundy, directed by Peter Strickland from 2014. Although it looks like, uh, I don't know what year it looks like it was made in, but uh, no, definitely not 2014. But um, Michael, how would, you, how would you describe this film to someone who's never seen it? I'm curious. I would say, I mean, first of all, I would say it's got a 70s vibe in terms of the visual. Okay. I know the, the music. The director said, um, I think it was um, a guy called Jess Franco who re released a number of films back in that decade that was an inspiration. And also, I think uh, the Jello films as well, he cribbed quite a lot. Jello. Jello. 
Um, I have to say it like that every time. Go ahead. And he's he's um I would say it's a visual it's a visual treat. Like when you when you start that film, um you've got like the sounds of nature all around the main character. It's almost like a like an ASMR kind of experience. And again, you're being as the director is trying to trigger you in, this is a sensual experience, and you get those lovely freeze frames while she's cycling to the uh basically to the, their place of residence. Um, I would say it's a visual treat. It's it's full of dissolves. It's full of wonderful camera work. Um, it's full of Baroque kind of set design. Um, even though they used a, a real house, um, they they decorated it in a very wonderfully ornate fashion. Um, so I would say that the director is almost trying to hypnotise you and trying to put you in the same state that Evelyn is in when we meet her at the start of the film. Um, which is a realm, well, to quote another film, a realm of the senses. Mm. Well, and this is a film basically about two women, uh, Cynthia and Evelyn. Uh, I have my best uh, Cynthia attire on right now because she wears a shirt in the movie that is silky and soft, and uh, so I'm trying. Her hair is always up, though, but... <laughs> um, so I'm channeling Cynthia right now, but... Um, this is a love story that is set in a world that apparently no men live in mm -hmm. uh, because there's no man in the, in the movie. The Duke of Burgundy has really nothing to do with it except that it's the name of a butterfly. Yep. Um, but there's no Duke. And, you know, I, I think that if you <laughs> if you just read the title, you would think, oh, this is like a Jane Austen or period yeah, piece of yeah, some yeah. kind. Mm -hmm. No, this this so, is um, you know it's very much a um, it's a two hander between these two wonderful actresses um, who are both charged with portraying an unconventional relationship. And what what the director does, what Peter Strickland does, is he basically loads his deck and he's showing you information that he wants you to see at the start of the film, but he's not showing you everything. So we don't understand the dynamic between these two people when the film starts. Right. And it's like a dominant right. submissive relationship. So at first you think, well, okay. Um, Cynthia has all, all of the power in that uh, relationship. Um, she is the sort of driving force. But as it goes on, you kind of find, well, fair, very quickly, that Evelyn is the one who is, is calling the shots in a lot of ways. Um, and in fact, that's yes. dispensed with pretty early on. So it's not really a spoiler to go into that because it's within the first, I'd say, what, 10, 10 minutes that we find that out in the, in the film, maybe quicker. Once it's once it comes back to the next day and they repeat the routine, I think yeah. we have a pretty good sense of who is controlling who, uh, which is the person that you wouldn't, wouldn't uh, automatically yeah. assume yeah. Yeah. is. But I, yeah, I think that the first watch you are so enamored with uh, the visual, like you said, the sensory experience that it's almost difficult to focus on the actual story. Yeah. Would you say that's true for you too? I mean, I think it's too, it's a very different experience, like you said, on on two watches. So the first watch that, that, that you have, you're taken in by Peter Strickland's visual techniques, by the sound, but my God, by that soundtrack, by um by Cat Ears mm. is so lush and sensual that, you know, I mean I've I've had it on repeat for a week, you know, it's just been fantastic. It's this dreamy ethereal place that you just want to live. Uh, but then when you watch it the second time, you're paying more attention to the, the relationship between the two main characters and the power dynamics and the way that they shift. And, you know, your, your heart goes out to them because they are trying, you know, they, they've got like it's hard enough in a normal relationship, but they're trying to navigate this extra layer of frosting 
that they have to go through in order to try and make this thing work. Um, and it is more complex. You know, it is very much these two people trying to find a way to communicate. Like, I think that is part of the, the, the theme of the butterflies and the moths is that they have almost, like, I think they go into it, telepathic ways of communicating or ways using sound frequencies where they have their own language that may not be understandable mm. to anyone outside of it. And I think that is very much like what Cynthia and Evelyn are doing. They have their own language and they are communicating with each other through that. And as the film goes on, you understand it so that you understand when, when that thing breaks you understand how significant that is and what's at stake and it's it's a perfect way of setting up the stakes in that in that film um i mean i think i saw an interview with um uh sid c knutson i'm i'm gonna say is is the actor who plays cynthia and she's she's wonderful in real life she's nothing like the character she's chewing gum she's kind of if the question doesn't strike her the right way she isn't playing along with the interviewer she's no very noble shit um but she is. Um, she basically said when she read the script, what stood out to her is that you had these moments of calm in the relationship, and she said it gave her a feeling like in the pit of her stomach, like oh, oh no, what is going to happen next? And I think the film is very much like that because you get, you don't just get the dramatic peaks and troughs. You get the everyday. You get the humdrum stuff. You see, the, you see the two of them when they are just in the study together, um, and then you know exactly that they they love each other. Um, so that you know what's at stake again when things start to go pear-shaped. It, you know, it doesn't. You know, you, you know exactly what's uh, what's on the line. Well, I was going to say too. A lot of times, when when a relationship is portrayed in a film as incredibly specific, mm. like BDSM or um, lesbian in this case, where it's not necessarily something that every single person could relate to it you kind of worry about like not being able to feel the way that the characters do but Strickland does this in such a way that this movie is literally about all relationships I think I, I feel like what he's saying and what you are able to see you can absolutely understand in your own personal life and if you've ever been with anybody especially for a long time or a, a you know a good chunk of time it's especially talking about that like how do you keep passion alive in the mundane hmm. and uh that's that's really what i think it comes down to is if you love each other but you have different needs and you have different preferences and one of them if they're hard for you to meet them but you love each other enough to try what does that look like yeah and how and how does that pan out over time as well? Like exactly because the film establishes a routine. There's an order to the to the world to what what's happening there. And then when obviously, you know, my heart leapt the second time I watched it because when I saw, I think she's credited as the carpenter when she comes in for you know uh, she's measuring up Evelyn for a very specific piece of equipment, the the trunk. If anyone yes. has seen it before, they'll know what I'm talking about. So the reason why I went ah oh, no when I saw that scene is because I could see. Evelyn becoming slightly hypnotized by the act of the measuring and by the act of planning out the, the, the trunk. And by the same token, she was associating that desire for the equipment with a desire for the carpenter. And I was like, oh, okay, this is why this is going this way. You know, it made a lot more sense to me the second time around. I was very much in Cynthia's headspace when I was watching that scene. So I was like, oh, please don't do that. <laughs> but I know that she, she's going to. You know, um, right. 
And I think the film does a really good job. And then the other thing that I like about the film is it's got a very abstract ending. Um, so the last 10 minutes or so, you very much go into kind of almost a dreamscape. But that is anchored by everything we've seen before. So in, in this one, Strickland really does make sure that you know what that abstract thing is about. You might not be able to give exact description, but you know that it's about their fears and desires about the relationship. Um, and you go through that journey and then he returns you again to the two characters at the end who are both having a discussion about their relationship. And it's not like everything's fine and everything's going to be okay, but you're left with a sense, it's, it's uncertainty, but there's also hope there. And I, I would take uncertainty and hope over like doom. And I think that's where the film goes. It says, this isn't resolved, but they're trying and they're going to continue to try. And I think that's yes. the last kind of look in the mirror at the end is is telling you when, when you get that. And I think that there's not a lot of there's not a lot of movies that sort of address this. Oddly yeah. enough, most things are either about infatuation and the beginning of things mm. like, you know, new romance or dating and or they're about breakups mm. or the d divorce the end so it's very rare to find something especially this beautiful yes a beautifully shot and um so visionary in in the the way the cinematography is so lush and interesting yep and there, is, odd. there isn't a frame in that film that isn't shot in a way that you could you could hang it on your wall you know um the, the every mm -hmm. everything is the choices are interesting the choices serve the story it feels like you're let into this world. You don't feel like a voyeur, which is a very, very, very um, difficult thing to pull off with a film like this. And Strickland, the camera tricks that he's using and the way that he draws you in, it makes you feel like you're accepted into this private world, which is very different to feeling like a, you know, an out, like you're intruding or an outsider. And I think he was very deliberate in how he did that. He said in an interview, like about the BDSM aspect, that normally with that the fantasy is never broken. Like if you see BDSM in a movie, you never get to see what happens when real life intrudes on it. Um, and mm. I, I think that was one of the things that I liked about this film is that it's like, oh, okay, like there is the bubble and there's outside the bubble and those two things meet sometimes. And you also see what happens when like in real time, if their character breaks, mm. if they break character, yeah, you know, because there's that scene where it's like, She's trying to be dumb mm. and she kind of slips up because she's messing up and she's like, I'm sorry, sorry, please don't get mm. mad at me. Like that sort of thing. You don't see that either. Mm. And that's just so human, you know, human. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, or like, um, you know, you did a good job, but do it this way next time. Exactly. Yeah. That more sort of more like, oh. like that's one of my favorites. More mm. conviction. Like I know. It's, it's, it's kind of funny. And it's kind of serious at the same time. And it's and it's very sad yeah. at the same time because you're like, oh my gosh, please. That was like the best I could do. Mm -hmm. Like, And the thing is, you, <laughs> you know, Cynthia, because she's like, oh, I really want to describe the, all of the ways that I love you and do all the traditional things that you would do. And Evelyn's just like, no, I'm all business. I, I want in this period you to tell me what I need to achieve the result that I want to put it politely. Right. Um, and you can right. see the relief on both of their faces afterwards, but Cynthia's relief is very different because it's, oh, thank God I managed to navigate this situation with my girlfriend, only for Evelyn to come back and say, more conviction next time. And she's like, okay. 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 Well, welcome to dating. Welcome to long-term relationships. <laughs>
they're so fun. Uh, yeah. So I would say, uh, not similar in the, in the obsessive way, but mm. also, uh, both Senna and Duke of Burgundy are, uh, very electric. Mm. You can feel, these are movies that you can feel. Yeah. And, uh, and in both. they're yeah. stimulating picks as well. And, uh, kind of character studies too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think you find out, like, the interesting thing to me about in, in, in Duke is, um, obviously, I think Cynthia's like a kind of scientist, right? Uh, that's what she does. Mm -hmm. I think it's more than a hobby. I think it is a vocation. And she's obviously quite obsessive about that. Um, and I think maybe that obsessiveness is what attracted Evelyn to her in the first place. Um, but I think, obviously, when, when you're a scientist, there's a degree of rigor and there's a degree of being, you know, being grown up about things. I don't think Evelyn fully got that, you know, when they first met. And I think Cynthia has to kind of teach her that as they go. Like there's the, the scene where she basically says, right, make me a birthday cake. And you kind of get the sense that, okay, well now she's, she's playing with Evelyn because she's like, oh, is this a new game? And then obviously it becomes something different, but it's, it's her way of both, you know, getting a little bit of revenge on her, but also teaching her how to be a grown up as well. This is what it means to care for the person that you're with this is what it means because you get the sense that i don't imagine evelyn would have been making a birthday cake for cynthia on her birthday i, I don't get right. the sense that that's something she would have been doing so i think there's another right. message being sent there in in that scene if that uh and that's and that's the same in that scene where she is there at the lecture and she tries to ask questions and they're dumb questions and it's like oh you know you don't know what you're talking about that sort of sense of being an ingenue yeah and being kind of immature um but then cynthia just loves her so much i really think as much as this is a movie about evelyn and how evelyn's kind of pulling the strings mm. i think the movie itself is about cynthia yeah and i think that we're meant to see it through her yeah i think it shifts i think we start with like because it's very sensory i think we start with evelyn's headspace and then as the film goes on i think you're meant to shift mm -hmm. towards cynthia's point of view because the bubble gets burst and when reality comes flooding in who's equipped to deal with the reality it, well it's not Evelyn it's it's Cynthia and we see things from mm -hmm. her perspective you know she's getting older she's got problems with her back you know mortality is obviously on her mind <laughs> she's you know um the last thing she wants when she sat in bed is another scenario that she has to play out it's like come on read read the room understand what I'm feeling <laughs> and I just want to wear my pajamas right now. Yeah, exactly. I just want to be comfy. You don't. Sometimes you don't want to get all, all dressy, dressy. Sometimes you just want to feel comfortable in you know in your own uh, in your own pajamas, and like everyone right. doesn't doesn't get that. Um, so I think when you get to the end scene, it is a major breakthrough for Evelyn when she says to Cynthia, you know, okay, if it's making you feel like this way, you know, because she really begins to understand she begins to empathize with Cynthia because you get that abstract sequence where they both kind of go into each other's thoughts and feelings. And after that, that's when they have the chat. The only thing that I would right. say is like, obviously Cynthia is completely devastated at that point. She doesn't know if she can fully trust what Evelyn's saying. Cause like, even if Evelyn's being sincere, that need isn't going anywhere. So they're going to have to find yeah. ways in the future of managing that. So that's that's right. why it's not that's why I like the ending because it's not a deliberate downer, but it is there is the uncertainty, but with a, with a dash of hope.
and I'll, I'll take that. Like I said, I'll definitely take that. Take that over doom any day. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I am going to end this by pulling up. I know not everybody watches video, but this is the book that I've been basing the series off of the best film that you've never seen. And uh, this week, uh, my pick was Ugetsu, uh, which is a Japanese film by Mizuguchi. I'm just going to say it like that, even though it's not Italian, it's Japanese. Uh, the director who recommended that one is Kimberly Pierce, who did Boys Don't Cry and the remake of Carrie. It is described as a ghost story. It's not one that I am crazy about, but cinephiles love it. So I don't know how much of this is really a hidden gem which keeps being the case for for our cinephile crowd, but it would be for the average person. Tell that. tell me what the man, the average man on the street would get out of this film. Then, like if you if you had to pitch it to me. Oh my gosh. Um. Wow, Michael, that is a hard one. I don't know that the average person would. I mean, if they were seeking it out, I'd be like, "Have you even ever seen anything that's Japanese?" First of all. Mm. Because that's a whole thing. And usually Japanese cinema is associated with like samurai, um, you know, or something, I mean, anime. Mm -hmm. um, but whereas this one is kind of like a dreamy uh, movie where uh, it's like working class people and it's kind of horror, like folklore, okay. folk tale sort of thing. Uh, and uh, there's shenanigans that go on uh affair wise with this married couple but then there's spooky stuff so it's it's very atmospheric but uh i didn't get drawn into the world as much as most people do mm. it seems well i mean the but... thing with these lists is like they're not an absolute uh cast iron like you will love everything on this i mean i remember getting like um a thousand and one movies to see before you die uh, I don't know if you've oh, that yeah. one. Like, I've that's, seen that before. That's like a, you know, quite, I guess, quite a morbid way of looking at film watching. But um, like there's stuff in there that I watched that I was like, I don't know why I, I went through. Like, I, I think I saw The Parallax View, which is like a 17 paranoid mm -hmm. conspiracy thriller. It yeah. absolutely did nothing for me. Like, I love, I actually love films like that. But The Parallax View just completely turned me off. Didn't like the lead character, found him obnoxious. Uh, got the message, got the visual metaphors that they were laying out. Didn't think it was great. Love, I love that whole seventies paranoid cinema. So I was like, great, this is going to be good. The only scene that got me was they have like the head-on thing where he sits down in front of the cinema screen. And he's played images that are so, supposed to kind of either brainwash him or allow the the shady figures to figure out what his psychology is like, so they know whether they mm. can manipulate him or not. That was great. It was a great fantastic edited scene but as i say this was in that book and it's like well you know you're gonna have some misses didn't do anything no. for you yeah mo most of these uh i'm getting to the point where like i haven't seen them where these are these have all been rewatches so mm. far but once i get to the to the to the level where i'm gonna have to start fresh i think there is a chance that i might like less than than not but at the same time I like the idea behind this, which is talking to people about what they're enthusiastic about. What did they love about it? And trying to see that when you go into it, just like with these, with Senna and Duke of Burgundy, if you're listening to us right now, go into it remembering what Michael loves. 
and kind of try to see it in addition to your own eyes mm. with with the observations and analysis that you had. And that's what's so great about like reading other people's reviews on Letterboxd because I, I get more sometimes out of reading someone's review who has the opposite opinion uh, to me because I'll be like, oh, OK, I'm maybe there's something I missed or maybe there's an aspect of the film that I've overlooked or, oh, OK, I just felt differently about it. And this is the reason. So there's a there's an element of like self-discovery that goes along with that as well, which is pretty cool. And it's kind of cool, too, when you go into something where it's the opposite, where you don't like something. And then you read a review that's that's just exceptional and you're like, wow, I didn't like I'm going to think about this differently now. Like it literally can change your mind. Yeah. Yeah. Or it can open something up to you, especially if you can talk directly to the person who wrote it, which is what's so cool about this and be like, wow, like what else did you see? And then, and then you know, so, other, yeah, you're right. You know, that's it, a whole it other trail, it. isn't it? That's a whole other like, uh, you know, breadcrumb trail to another movie and another movie and. Oh, yeah, of course. My recommendation watch list is so large that I, I think that it's going to just internally combust at some point. Like, mm. it's going to be like, all right, Amy, you can't add anymore. You did four. You did, You've reached um, capacity. You did eight and a half recently, didn't you, by Fellini? Yeah. And I, I've got mad respect to you for watching that because I've, I've tried four times now, have not got through. Oh, my God. I haven't, honestly. So, like, I worship at your altar for doing that one my my buddy jerry just saw it and he uh gave it low as well and i it felt cathartic i didn't even read his review yet to feel better just to just see you know the score because you're like you feel so alone with some of mm -hmm. these films you know especially fellini and oh man uh, french new wave stuff is never good yeah. for me oh you might want to try, um, you might want to try agnes um oh goodness what's her name agnes Berder. Uh, she did this. For, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Have you seen the Cleo from Cleo? From, yeah, Cleo. yeah. Amazing. Yeah, that was that was Lau's pick. I think that was episode two mm. that Lau was on. And we talked about he picked Cleo from five to seven as his like number one yeah. pick. Yeah, that's definitely a hidden. That one is. Too. That one's like the French New Wave film that you give to someone who doesn't like French New Wave. Like French New Wave. Michael. <laughs> it's like the, ju the jump page. cuts are there, but they're not, you know, as as obnoxiously used as in some of the other ones i think as breathless for instance mm -hmm. we're going to end on that note just to, just to alienate the whole population uh but michael <laughs> it's been a pleasure truly to have you thank you for dropping by to share with us everybody please see senna and the duke of burgundy and we will see you at the movies